0: Hey Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. <music>
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your host, Bridget Keyes.
0: And I'm your co-host, TJ West.
1: And today we're going to talk about we're off to kill the wizard. Teach, do you want to try to give the quick summary? Sure.
0: I am very good at that, as you know, and as our listeners know. So in this one, Jessica is once again visiting yet another niece, which, God, how many nieces and nephews does she have scattered across the country? And it turns out that a megalomaniacal theme park magnate decides that he wants to build a new theme park with Jessica around Jessica's novel so he invites her to his new house of horrors or whatever. But then he turns out he's murdered, of course, and he's a real a real jackass. <laughs> and um, and as it slowly unfolds, we have a surfeit of suspects. There's the secretary, there's one of the peons in the company, but the real culprit as it turns out is someone that was promised a promotion by said magnate. They had a fight, he pushed him, he hit his head, and then made it tried to make it look like a suicide, flipped some phone stuff. Jessica figures it all out. The end.
1: Yeah, and um, I don't even know where to start with all of this. I mean, you mentioned how many nieces. This is actually only her second niece, Carol, but Carol, God bless you. We will never see you again. So I don't think Jessica loves you that much, you know, because she's never coming back to visit. Um, But the idea that this guy wants to build a theme park based on Jessica's books. What did you think about that? Because I'm like, it was going to be called, what was it going to be called? The J.B. Fletcher's mansion of murder and mayhem. I mean, it sounds cool in premise, but then, like, how do you actually, like, solve a mystery in a theme park? I don't actually get what it would be. Right. I mean, I turned to my
0: my partner at the while we were watching this and I said, this feels contrived even by, like, Murder, She Network (laughs) TV standards. And I said, do people generally build theme parks around? Murder books. novels like is that really like, I, I understand like franchise properties like universal and stuff like that but well Harry myself, Potter
1: was a series of books and now it's a theme park
0: yes but I that only happened after the movies because obviously there's this sort of right. like, the movies are you need the visuals. Into- Right. They're constructed in such a way that they are like lend themselves to the like the kinetic thrills of a theme park. I'm not sure. Like I can imagine maybe a board game like I know. But the the whole idea of a
1: mystery is that you don't know who done it. Right. And the fun is like figuring out who done it. And I just don't understand how you do that in a theme park. But we're I mean, this guy's a total schlockmeister. Right. So it's not I probably isn't even supposed to have anything to do with murder. It's just going to be like horrors, shock gags. Like things popping out at you and screaming. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be like more like a haunted house, which is kind of what when the episode opens, um, we're at his medieval world. But it's also just like kind of like some haunted house horror show medieval world. Like it opens with him riding in on a cart and he's about to be hanged. This is also, I'm just like, what What were the writers doing? Because this guy's about to be hanged and there's like kids watching because it's a theme park for kids and they're scared. And Jessica's like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just fake. It's fun. It's so fun. Let's right. watch someone get hanged. It's fun.
0: And I mean, to be fair, I mean, she is quite scathing in her like rejection of this offer. You know, and it was one of those moments where we get to see Jessica in her sort of puritanical frame of mind. You know, not that Jessica's always like uptight or prudish, but she definitely lets people know when she doesn't approve of their yeah. moral standards, which she clearly does not with this, with this, uh, what did you call him? Schlackmeister?
1: <laughs> schlockmeister. <A> schlockmeister. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in and in True to Murder, she wrote Fashion. You know, it's another rich guy who's, as you said, egomaniacal, and ultimately that is his downfall, right? Um, because Murder, She Wrote, over and over and over again tells us we do not like white patriarchal men who think they can control everyone else's lives just because they have money, which is a lovely message of the series. But but,
0: but while we're on the subject of white patriarchal men, the one thing that we have to talk about before we go any further... Are you going to talk about the line? I am going to talk about the line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not even funny. It's actually horrifying. But you should tell them what it is. I'm sorry I interrupted.
0: So as... As the schlockmeister is leading Jessica into the warren of tunnels and offices underneath the theme park, he's, you know, she's protesting that she, you know, she doesn't really want to be here, and he says and I quote permit me some seduction before you cry rape
1: Yeah, I wrote it down too (laughs) like, what the fuck
0: (laughs) Listeners, I literally texted Bridget while I was watching it I said I, I quoted the line and said, what the fuck, murder? She wrote, like... Yeah,
1: <laughs> I yeah. I could
0: not believe it. Pardon no. my expletives. Was- I
1: couldn't believe that Jessica was like, ha huh, huh, okay, I'll keep following you. Like, I would have <laughs> been like, bro, if that's how you talk, I'm already out. I am so out. <laughs> yeah, I mean...
0: To, but to, to sort of give it the the historicist gloss, I was like, what a great indication of just how ubiquitous like rape culture is, that it creeps yeah. in even here in an, a throwaway line, but that no one raises a ruckus, that it made, through, yeah. made it through the censors on CBS. You know, it's quite astounding, really, that you have... It really like, is, just, yeah. Just how blasé this line is delivered, you know, yeah. in this context. Absolutely. Um,
1: yeah. Horrifying. Absolutely. Horrifying. horrifying. So horrifying that it's important. And then, you know, it's followed up with more horror because he brings Jessica into his office to make his pitch to her. And she's like, you know, I'm not really digging this. And then what's cute is that um, I feel like she gets on her little soapbox about, well, I write books for people who read. But of course, they're like, you know, trashy, like, murder mysteries that you'd buy at, like, Walgreens, you know? Um, And she's like, you run a theme park for impressionable young kids. Like, obviously, what I do is literature, it's culture. <laughs> um, and he, so she's like, so I'm out. And she starts to leave, and he has, like, a secret switch under his desk, and he bolts her in. And I just kept thinking about how, you know, like – because he's just said this line that invokes as you say rape culture and now he's locking her in the office. I mean all of this is couched in like a guy who won't take no for an answer but a guy who won't take no for an answer is very dangerous regardless of what it is that he wants you to say yes to you know and later and I mean we've already seen her strong armed into getting into a limo to come to the theme park. Later, she's held at gunpoint and taken onto a private plane where she meets his widow. I mean, the whole episode is Jessica being really victimized in a way that, God bless her. I mean, she keeps her head held high. She doesn't whine about it. Um, she's not afraid. She's like, you people are creeps, and I am not tolerating this.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, they're also, and from the point of view of 2022, Shades of Matt Lauer with the, the doors locking, you know, and keeping Ugh. her in prison. So, I mean, it is not so subtly evocative of those, you know, sleazy, powerful men who like to victimize women in whatever way. And then then he goes the step further and tries to, you know, get basically opposition research on Jessica to force her hand into signing over her properties to him for good purposes, luck with which, that
1: what, what dirt are you gonna find on jb fletcher i mean good luck with that right
0: right i mean it's also like i said the whole thing feels very contrived and silly it's like is he real are there really no other hot pro- novel like mystery novel properties currently in the united states other than jb fletcher like
1: i thought that too and i also thought um what are the odds that this guy's at theme park headquarters just happened to be in wherever the niece lives Right. That he can even abduct her to do this? And then really, more likely, wouldn't his lawyers have just talked to her lawyers? Yes. I, I mean, well, I guess the episode maybe wants us to believe that they've already had that conversation and she said no and that's why he's pressuring her, but they never tell us that. Right. It's as if this comes out of nowhere. And right. like, Call my people. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, exactly. The other lovely thing that we get from this, I think, in terms of Jessica being on uh, a high horse, is when she... Um, he, he talks about the movies and what kids today like at the movies, which we've already seen in the episode where she goes to Hollywood and the corpse danced at midnight is getting made into a movie and it's really crappy and schlocky, right? Um, but she tells this guy, when Cary Grant bowed out, so did I, which I think is such a lovely line of like, she quit watching movies when they stopped being good and the classical Hollywood period ended, which is of course when Angela Lansbury quit making movies. But right. then would bake a bunch in the nineties anyway.
0: Yeah, that's, a, I actually had not noticed that line. So I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because I completely missed that Carrie Grant line. So I definitely approve of Jessica Fletcher's opinion in that regard.
1: Why are you texting right now? What I'm are not, you doing? I was looking,
0: no, I was looking up to find out who was the guest star.
1: <laughs> Cause you always yell at me for not being able to the remember. The guy who played Horatio, teams. the the theme park. No, no, no I was like,
0: no, I was looking for Christine Belfort, his wife.
1: Christine Belford, yeah, because we're going to talk about how it's Kirsten Nyland, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that's why Christine Belford plays Horatio. Horatio gets shot, right? And uh, as I said, oh, Jessica gets abducted and brought onto a plane where she meets his widow, Erica Baldwin, who's played by Christine Belford, who wants Jessica to investigate the murder and she'll give her $100,000 to do it, which is like a laughable amount of money to be giving J.B. Fletcher at this point in her life. Um, it's actually quite insulting. But uh,
0: Yeah, which she says as much. She's like, I don't need your money, which, you know, that's quite a testament to how much of a success J.B. Fletcher has been as a mystery novelist. But then again, I mean, she's a hot property, clearly. She is. People want theme parks.
1: But yeah, Christine Belford is Kirsten. And I feel like you wanted to talk about that, which is why you were looking stuff up on your phone.
0: I was, that is exactly, well, because as our listeners might remember, Bridget always lectures me about not remembering people's names. That was one of her (laughs) snarks the first episode, and so I wanted to make sure that I knew the guest star's name before I said anything, but anyway. You could just take
1: notes when you watch, like I do. Yes,
0: well, you're more type A than I am, so. I am not the epitome of type A.
1: You're the epitome of
0: type A. It's quite annoying. Listeners. Listeners, she most certainly is okay. typing. Right.
1: Anyway, Kirsten.
0: <laughs> so, for those of us who are fans of the Golden Girls, and I strongly suspect that there's a lot of, there's a nice Venn diagram of Golden Girls and Murder, she wrote fans, I strongly suspect. She does play the first iteration of Rose Nyland's daughter, Kirsten, and is a horrible person and lectures her mother over supposed like financial Money. mismanagement. And she's not quite as unpleasant here, but she's still not exactly the most likable character. So she clearly has like a, t- a character type that she plays.
1: She will go on to be in a f- total of four episodes of Murder, She Wrote. But I have to say like, yeah, she's not a very likable person here and she's not very likable as Rose's daughter either. But um, when we see her on the plane, her back is to us at first and she spins around and she has this amazing blue and purple ombre eyeshadow. And this coral lip gloss, and I mean, she is like stunning. Mm, it's so, true. And She is um, wearing. She a can be evil, as far out- as I'm concerned, because yeah. she looks. She looks fantastic. And she is wearing a lovely
0: outfit at the time. Yeah. So I will agree with you. There is something delightfully glamorous. I'm telling you, we need to start like a Pinterest or some shit with, or a Tumblr with Golden with uh, Murder She Wrote costuming. Like the but show people is- already do that though. So you you need to get out of this academic mindset that everything has to be new. Like, of course, people already do it. Everything's already been done. There are already episode by episode podcasts. That, that's what we do. Like, there's an endless supply oh of God. things.
1: Are we going to leave this in the episode and we edit it?
0: I don't know. You're going to edit it. The part it. I... where
1: you yell at me about branching out our podcast into a fashion blog. He's he's she's struggling like probably probably we're gonna leave this in. So the other uh, cool guest star for people, if we go back a little bit further than the 80s, is um, Les Nessman from WKRP mm. is in this episode. Mm-mm. It's a really small role. He plays one of the guys who works for Horatio, and that uh, Horatio is blackmailing because Horatio blackmails everybody. Um, and he actually steals a bunch of money and Horatio's blackmail files and is trying to make off to Mexico City when the authorities catch him. Um, so I just appreciate that because he's less Nessman.
0: Right. And I mean, he doesn't love WKRP in Cincinnati. Although no. unfortunately it's one of those sitcoms that hasn't really had much of an afterlife in the the popular imagination.
1: Let's bring it back.
0: We will bring it back.
1: Are we also see Jess jogging in this one.
0: We do see Jess jogging. And I mean, and I do love the, the many shots that we have of just how surprisingly and enduringly virile she is. And I just think that's really
1: virile. Is that the word? Great. Well,
0: maybe not. Uh, vital. How about that?
1: Yeah, isn't virile like like manly?
0: It it can be. I mean, it's usually used that way. But I mean, there is anyway. <laughs> we're a little we're a little all over the place. You are.
1: I am that all over the place. Um, I think we should probably talk about the murder because. Yes. It's kind of a mess.
0: It is. And I mean, I was thinking about this, but maybe we can talk about the murder first and then
1: I'll... Yeah. So so ultimately, you know, Horatio is blackmailing all of his um, employees and it's his right-hand guy, his number two guy, who killed him. But he didn't... It wasn't like a cold-blooded plotted-out murder. It was kind of in a fit of passion. He hit Horatio and realized he was actually dead. And then once he realized he was dead, he figured he had to try to cover it up somehow. So he tried to make it look like a suicide. But That I'm fine with. That all sounds totally plausible. Where things get weird is that he decides that he needs to have Horatio shoot himself in his locked office and that he knows somehow the security guards will come running and that somehow he knows the security guards will call him to tell him they can't get into the office because the guy's been shot. So he rigs the secretary's phone so that it won't light up when it's calling the actual same extension and he's going to be in Horatio's office answering the phone and he turns the ringer off. I mean, it's this really convoluted like 1980s office phone setup that Mm -hmm. I just can't believe if you killed someone accidentally in the spur of the moment, you'd be clear headed enough to think through this whole system with like cutting wires on phones and turning ringers on and off and like and also like how did you even know the security guards would call you in the first place like it's weird that the security guards called instead of just busting Mm -hmm. the door down i mean the whole thing is totally whack teach
0: it is whack and i also would be very dubious that you would think that hey someone hit their head i know I'll make it look like a suicide with a gunshot as if a trained medical professional couldn't tell that it was the blunt force trauma that pre that pre- preceded the gunshot wound. Like, That's a really good point. I mean, maybe I've just watched too much CSI and Law and Order SVU, but I mean, come on now. Like, you couldn't have thought of some, other, if you're this clear headed, you couldn't think of some other more compelling way to stage a death. Right, like he could have just had
1: the body look like it fell down or something, like oh he stumbled and hit his head or something, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, but it's also,
0: but it's also revealing that, like, once again, as we did when uh, it's a dog's life, there's a moment of like technology that becomes over determined in the plot, which is really interesting. And again, one of those moments where like what we know about technology now means that this plot doesn't make sense, or you know, if if we're younger viewers, they'd be like, what on earth is going on? Because people don't use. Phones like that anymore. I
1: think they still do in like corporate offices and stuff. Maybe.
0: But I mean, even so, like, you wouldn't necessarily, your average layperson wouldn't have as much familiarity with that now as they would have.
1: In yeah. Lives. Well, I don't even think your average layperson would understand the phone system that completely back then like the way that Jessica discovers it is that she's like nosing around Horatio's office and she's like here's a phone I know what I'll do I'll pick it up and look at the back side of it right totally normal thing to do in the course of an investigation and I know I'll just pull the back off the phone out of curiosity right like this, this, is, this is this seems weird to me so I
0: have to that makes me wonder and this is a genuine question to you um, as the more um expertise with your expertise in television studies like do you just think that maybe audiences were just trained to sort of gl- like just sort of glide over those kinds of things oh, yeah. i mean that's true like in classic hollywood movies yeah. too like there are things that make no sense in classic hollywood but they but viewers weren't really trained or expected to have the same kind of like critical engagement with this particular kind of t or you know tv show or in what i was saying with movies like you just you go with the flow like you don't necessarily need to think about it too critically
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're interested in is who done it, not how done it. Right. You know, and and we know I, this is episode what nine of the series. I mean, at this point, and certainly in later seasons, you know, Jessica's going to figure it out. You know, she's going to figure it out before the police, or she's going to figure out why the police are wrong and what the actual solution is. And so, it's really not that important how she arrives at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you know we have to keep in mind. Look, I, I, I was re-listening to all of our episodes recently and i realized how often i complain <laughs> about the murders not being like really well thought out but um and i just want to say like i actually really love the series it kind of sounds right. like i'm shitting on it but we also have to keep in mind the constraints of tv writing i mean mm-hmm. they're writing 22 to 26 episodes per season and you're writing while other episodes are in production you don't write a tv a season in advance and so you know you have to crank out episodes in a way that If we were writing a mystery novel, yeah, we'd probably complain that the way Jessica in this case discovered the phone system and the way the murderer plotted out the phone system is totally contrived, right? But it's not a novel. It's a TV show and it's interrupted with commercial breaks and there's going to be another one next week and another one after that and another one after that. And so I think for the viewer's pleasure, it's really just about Jessica identifying the guy and those details are less important, right?
0: Sure and I mean, even if like in, uh, with a particularly prodigious and prolific mystery novelist will also have m- misfires or novels that feel stitched together from plots from their earlier work like even I mean, I love Agatha Christie at the Christie
1: Christie yeah,
0: yeah I mean, so like there is a sense of as you say, like both the industrial constraints of television but also just the fact of genre like
1: mm-hmm. that
0: you don't watch and this is my complaint when people were always complaining about well, it was too generic or blah 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 about you know movies or tv shows or books that are generic fiction like i i read it i read it because it's the genre that i'm reading not because i need everything so
1: formulaic that's literally the point of mystery and
0: romance right exactly formulaic exactly so i mean i I think that you're right and so i think that that's one of the reasons that we even though we may you know we may tweak or twinge or you know um what's the word i'm looking for Ding on Murder, She Wrote sometimes because of the contrivances of the plot. But we do love it. And we loved it at the time. And we appreciate absolutely. that people don't always watch things with quite the more critical eye that we do. But that's part of why we do what we do is to sort of understand how this works and why it doesn't sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I the fun for me, I remember as a kid, the fun being that in that second to la- it's like last commercial break, you know, after we have the tinkly, like she's figured it out, aha moment music.
0: Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 um, dun, dun, I remember dun.
1: sometimes that, yeah, my my dad would like give us little slips of paper and we'd all write down who we thought she was going to name, you know, and then we'd wait until she revealed it and we'd look at them to see if anyone had guessed correctly. And so I think, you know, that that's part of the fun. And um, if you play the game of I didn't actually have all of the pertinent facts to make that guess. Uh, to me, the fun of a murder mystery is when, when I can make a reasonable guess like that. Yeah. Right? And that's true for novels and TV shows. When you withhold facts from the reader or the audience or you don't give them everything or you misrepresent how you give things and they can't make that guess, it's not as much fun. Right. You know. And in this episode, we're immediately given Carlson... You know, two seconds after Horatio dies, Carlson's trash talking him like it's pretty clear he's probably going to be suspect number one. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, plus we also have the revealing scene where um, he and the the
0: other guy are talking and the other guy was also supposed to get a promotion. What was denied? And he's the one who sort of plants the seed in his mind that he might actually get denied and that's what engenders the whole confrontation to start with so that's one of those moments it's almost colombo-esque and that there's like a really heavy clue and it's like well surely this is too obvious it couldn't be like that this is the reason but as it turns out yes it is in fact it is in fact the the reason
1: reason. (laughs) and the whole time everyone thinks that maybe horatio's secretary has done it because she fled and she's in hiding um and actually there's a a kind of a confusing moment right before a commercial break where she turns up at Jessica's niece and nephew's mm-hmm, house mm-hmm. and says, I did it. I killed Horatio. Right. Uh, cut to commercial break. And then actually it's never established why she thinks she killed Horatio, which is a bit of a annoying thread. Right. But she is actually so sweet and she ran away cause she was scared and she's trying to write a mystery novel. Um, and what I loved about this was that at the end when, Horatio's widow gives Jessica the $100,000 for figuring out the murder. She turns it over to Lori and says, now you don't have to worry about rent or groceries. Now you can concentrate on writing your novel. <laughs> TJ, can you imagine if someone did that to you?
0: I mean, considering how much, I mean, $100,000 is uh, probably about, I would have to look exactly, but it's still a lot it's of money. Over I mean, even $100,000 itself is a lot of money, but it's probably like 200000 250000 with inflation. So it's like, that's a, huge chunk of money to get like and for Jessica to give away just willy-nilly is just really astounding
1: oh yeah and when Lori opens the envelope and sees the dollar figure she loses her shit right and Jessica's like laughing like yep I know I just made you rich Uh, yeah right that's such a generous thing for Jessica to do and the whole time I was like but what if her book is terrible
0: well it won't matter you know she still has this nice hefty chunk of change, <laughs> yeah.
1: But that's very common of Jessica, though. She always right. supports people who want to be writers. Um, we see her always being encouraging. Of that, I know it's one. Of, it's another is, like really nice sweet. grace
0: note of her character and personality that I appreciate that the show makes a point of bringing out. That she's not someone in love with her own celebrity. Like she's not afraid of standing up for her rights, as she shows with the corpse dance at midnight, or here with her conversation with Horatio. But she isn't someone who has become, like, so obsessed with herself in her own stardom that she is not willing to, as you say, reach out to people who are just beginning their writing journey.
1: Or her own talent, too. I mean, she could be like, do you know how hard I worked to become a famous actor, a famous, uh-huh. you know, writer? Like, do you think you have the chops? But she's like, good for you. Keep writing, honey. Here's $100,000. And
0: I mean, I do think, and part of what I think allows that to read so authentic is that from all that I've read, and obviously... You have to take all this with a grain of salt, but it seems like Angela Lansbury herself is a very down-to-earth mm-hmm. and very and person who's not who's not in love with her own celebrity. Like that, everything I've read about her as a person suggests that she is someone who never kind of gave into the glamour of Hollywood and its kind of self-aggrandizement. She was, in fact, as from what I was reading in preparation was she's very impatient with like anyone who tries to flatter her or you know kiss up to her Aww. so I think that that's part of what makes her persona as Jessica Reed is so rich and authentic is that yeah. that seems to be bringing in at least some of who Angela herself would be
1: yeah oh, which she's I love so perfect she yeah. is
0: She brings such joy to the world but speaking of joy and and characters I also have to note that John Shuck appears in this episode um, as the policeman like a sort of detective he's not a large presence but he's a a nicer and more sympathetic cop than we generally see and he seems to actually appreciate jessica and of course he's also well known to golden girls aficionados as gil kessler (laughs) Um, but also you know at the time right now people probably would be most familiar with him from being in mcmillan and wife at this point like he would have just been recently in television as a you know law enforcement so just an aside
1: yeah no 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 that's good stuff What else do you want to talk about?
0: Well, there was one actually, you know, substantive thing um, that I wanted to mention, which is that the revelation of what actually happened or what they postulate happened murder-wise is not delivered by Jessica, but by her nephew.
1: I noticed that too, yeah.
0: Interesting moment. For two reasons. One cuz she the way she frames it. She's like, "We well, are the police when you go on." But it's also cuz it's one of those moments where like she turns over her authority to, a, you know, a patriarchal figure, which is not usually Jessica's way, but it's just an interesting kind of dynamic going on there.
1: He's younger than her at least and he's her nephew by marriage, so there's some right. of that like just like being supportive, I think of her family mm-hmm. the way that we've seen before, you know um yeah. but yeah i thought that was really interesting too that he reconstructed the crime especially given what we had in the um why am i blanking on an episode name now the one with teddy the dog and oh it's a dog's life Think, yeah how would i forget that title and the fact that she like staged this really mm-hmm. elaborate reconstruction in in a courtroom right but here we have her telling him no go on you do it But she does set the trap that ultimately catches the murderer. And she sets the trap down in the sort of the underbelly of this medieval theme park using the illusions of the theme park. Right. Um, So the guy thinks she's standing in one place and it's mirrors and he shoots and it's not her, you know, because it's mirrors Mm -hmm. and they catch him. And I appreciated that, you know, because it's called. You know, killing the wizard. and we don't really actually talk about like wizards or magic at all in this episode, but then we use like the magic of illusion at the end right. to catch the guy,
0: yeah. I mean, I get you know, in its illusion, obviously to wizard of Oz, I guess clearly, Horatio is kind of like a malevolent person who's pulling all the strings in the same way and and illusion and all that is the same way. Oh, like yeah. Is. I mean, and as a person of smoke and mirrors, there's not much substance to him. It's all built on lies and
1: yeah,. Deception. Well, and we even have a giant head of him that talks to people, like the right. wizard's head in the Wizard of Oz, right? Right.
0: It's you know it goes back to when I when I when we opened this episode, like his egomaniacism is if that is the word, egomaniacality, whatever. <laughs> his egomania is so overweening that he literally inserts himself into his own theme park, and is you know this larger than life mogul. Which, you know, just adds that further layer of bite to the episode's criticism. Murder, She Wrote's longstanding interest in deconstructing and and subverting patriarchal capitalist authority, which I love. I just love that Murder, She Wrote is just so anti-Reagan. Like, even... It really
1: is. And I think if you just watch and don't really think about it, it's like, oh, it's the 80s, you know, whatever. But when you really start to unpack it, it's like every single week we're told that wealthy white guys are the problem. Like, this is amazing.
0: Yep. And it's so what makes it so ingeniously done is that it's packaged in such a way that, as you say, it's on CBS, it has Angela Lansbury, it has this, you know, very homey, comfy attitude. Jessica herself is just so seemingly innocuous. But yet, as you say, week after week, in both its narrative, but also as we see here with the actual giant. Head, which is the like literalization of Horatio's ego, overweening ego, you have these moments of just very powerful ideological critique that you just would never have expected in this particular location.
1: Yeah. And I love it. I love it too. (laughs) That's probably a good place to end. I think so. And um, we should all go read J.B. Fletcher's latest book, Dirge for a Dead Dachshund, which is we see in this episode. And while <laughs> we're doing that, um, our theme song is Reaching for the Sky, composed by Alexander Nakarada under Creative Common License. You can find us on Twitter at at Cove Gazette, and the same for Instagram. We're at Cove Gazette and the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook. I'm Bridget Keyes.
0: And I'm T.J. West.
1: And we'll see you next week.